Hello and welcome to Search for Truth, your programme number eight in our series called Fence Post Turtles. In this Search for Truth series, our Bible teacher Brian Johnston has been looking at prominent Bible characters from the Old Testament. And so far we've studied Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Gideon, David, Moses and Isaiah. And today Brian continues and looks at the life and times of Zerubbabel. Never heard of him? Well, let's go to Brian and discover who he was. Here's Brian. Okay, John. So we read in the Bible book of Haggai, So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and God's people to work on the house of their God. It's the first of the people named there that I want to speak about, Zerubbabel, whose enthusiasm was sparked. He lived at a time when God's people had the wrong priorities, the wrong perspective and the wrong perception. God was using the prophet Haggai at this time in the 5th century before Christ to call on his people, Israel, to reevaluate their performance. Consider your ways, he demanded of them. Is it a time for you to embellish your own houses while this house of mine, God said, referring to the temple, lies in ruins? Wrong priorities indeed. But there was also a wrong perspective. God challenged them again through his prophet. How do you see it now? That is, what's this take of yours on the temple you're building? Part of the problem was that they had among them some who had seen this temple in its former glory. And what they could now see in terms of the rebuilding project at hand was nowhere near as magnificent as the temple Solomon had built and into which the visible glory of God had descended. What they were experiencing seemed to pale into insignificance by comparison. But they had the wrong perspective. God now revealed to them that the latter glory of this house, he says, will be a greater thing than the former. In this place I will give peace. God was sharing with them, you'll notice, a sense of the continuity of his divine purpose in living with men and women on this earth. God wasn't counting first temple, second temple, third temple, etc. They all merged together in his single gracious purpose to reside in an earthly house at that site. That latter temple, referred to, when Christ reigns on earth in the future, will be more glorious than even Solomon's earlier temple, for the Lord will be there in glorious person himself in the future. As regards the wrong perception, God reminded them out of the law that sacredness is not transmitted like defilement. Contamination is contagious, but consecration isn't. The point was, God said, so is every work of their hands and what they offer. Dull attitudes pollute our worship, and it was certainly true then. God promised them, from the day the temple of the Lord was founded, from this day on I will bless you. All of which shows that attitude to God's house is key to God's blessing. God's people then felt their insecurity among the political and military powers surrounding them. However, God said that they didn't need to be afraid of these powers. He was going to shake them up. He'd also shake up the nations of the earth in the future before the Lord returns to reign. God's intention for his own people, by contrast, was that they should be stirred, not shaken. Stirred in spirit is translated in one version, which we referred to earlier, as sparked with enthusiasm. 
as when we read, so the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and God's people to work on the house of their God. On the other hand, God warned, I will shake all the nations. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this later and says it denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us offer to God an acceptable service. You'll find those words in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. In other words, as applied to God's New Testament people, we shouldn't be daunted and intimidated by secular and cultural opposition today any more than they were to be in Haggai's time. For the things of God are unshakable. God's word is forever settled in heaven. Opponents may offer up great swelling words, but our convictions are to be unshakable as rooted in the promises of the eternal God found in the words of Scripture which cannot be broken. These things, back in Haggai's day, come into sharp focus in the man leading the temple building project, the man Zerubbabel. He was stirred, not shaken at this time, when the word of God came to him through the prophet Haggai. We're viewing him as another fence post turtle in that he was placed into this position of leadership among God's people by God. His name, the word Zerubbabel, means born in Babylon. Hardly an inspiring name, for it contained the reminder that God's people had only recently returned from an exile which God had imposed on them as a result of their previous chronic disobedience. Could a man born in Babylon be a builder for God in Zion, in Jerusalem? By the grace of God, he could be. Zerubbabel had been infected with apathy, just like the rest of the people at this time. His priorities, his perspective and his perception had to be corrected as well. But God sparked his enthusiasm once more. It had been there before. For had he not made the journey from exile to willingly offer to be part of this Jewish task force, attempting to renew their spiritual foundations? Indeed he had. It had been then a movement of God, and God was stirring his discouraged workforce back to the realisation that he was still with them. If only they would recommence the building and enter into his blessing. At the end of this short prophetic message, captured in the book of the prophet Haggai, we find it stated very explicitly that God planned to make Zerubbabel to be like a turtle on a fence post. In other words, a man in a position which he could not have reached all by himself. But God used different imagery when he said, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and I will make you like a signet ring. It's easy to miss the full significance of this when we read our Bibles. This statement of blessing by God reverses an earlier curse once made in the very same terms. This is what we read in Jeremiah the prophet and chapter 22. Even though Jeconiah were a signet ring in my hand, yet I would pull you off. I will hurl you into another country. There you will die. But as for that land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. 
this curse had been spoken before God swept his disobedient people away into captivity under the Babylonians more than 70 years earlier. Jeconiah, against whom the curse was spoken, had been one of the very last kings to reign in Jerusalem before it fell to the Babylonian invaders around 587 BC. What happened to this king whom God has spoken these strong words against? Well, he was indeed taken into captivity, along with his remaining subjects. Strangely, despite Jeconiah's personal prosperity being restored, he did die in Babylon. He did have a son, Shealtiel, but his son, Shealtiel, never succeeded him to the throne in fulfilment of this curse. There was no opportunity for that because Shealtiel, the son, also died, somewhat prematurely, and in Babylon. So the prediction is clarified. Jeconiah would be childless as far as the throne was concerned. He did have a child, but the child never reigned on the throne. But there's still more to this intriguing personal history. Jeconiah had married the daughter of Neri. This woman was already a widow, with a son, Pediah, by her deceased husband, before she remarried Jeconiah. Jeconiah is sometimes, his name is sometimes shortened to Coniah, by the way, it's the same person. Then Jeconiah and his wife had a son together, that's Shealtiel, whom we've previously mentioned. In turn, Shealtiel married, but alas, he too died before fathering a son. According to the biblical custom applying then, it was the duty of his stepbrother, Pediah, to marry his stepbrother's wife to raise up descendants on behalf of his stepbrother, Shealtiel. This he did, and this resulted in the birth of Zerubbabel, who was among those who returned from the captivity to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. So Jeconiah's descendants did return to Israel, those from his grandson's generation. But the cursed bloodline ends with Shealtiel, and the blessing is restored upon Zerubbabel. He was a legal descendant of the kingly line in the way that we've described, but he was not a blood relative of the cursed Jeconiah. So the curse was upheld against Jeconiah, but graciously the ruling lineage returned to blessing under Zerubbabel. There's something even more involved in Zerubbabel, being this fence-post turtle that we've been thinking about. Check out our Lord's genealogies, as given in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, and Luke's Gospel chapter 3 and verse 27. Mary's bloodline was literally free of Jeconiah. The actual bloodline through Nathan in combination with the legal title to the throne through Solomon, as given by Matthew, are brought together in Zerubbabel. You'll find him in both lists. And this ensured the Messiah's right to reign, clear of the curse which had once been pronounced on the kingly line in the time of Jeconiah. The unusual parentage of this man Zerubbabel is the key. It's amazing how the details of the Bible all fit together like pieces of a jigsaw so the whole thing is correct. What an honour for this man who was born in Babylon. He actually has become, in some ways, representative of Jesus in that he was legally of the royal lineage, actually of David's bloodline, 
turning the curse of his grandfather's disobedience into blessing through his own obedience, a leader of God's people and, of course, a builder of God's house. We can see a picture of Jesus in this man in all of these terms. Wow, that's what I would call a fence-post turtle. Every attainment was by God's sovereign grace operating in his life. Now, I remind you that if you'd like a transcript booklet containing all the talks in this series, please let us know and ask for the title Fence Post Turtles. If you've a pen and paper to hand, I'll give you our contact details so you can ask for the booklet. Um, the address has changed from what it was before, so please write this uh, down and make a note of it. It's Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooden Bassett, Swindon SN48DY and our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info Now you might be interested to know that many titles of Search Truth uh, transcript uh, booklets can be accessed and you can also uh, listen again to many of these broadcasts off air by audio podcasts. If you go to www searchfortruth.podbean.com You can browse the list of previous talks which you'll see has been sorted into categories to assist you to find what you're looking for. And finally, many thanks for the privilege of your company today. Next week we look at our final character from the Old Testament of the Bible and uh, he's Jacob, so please do join us. Until then, very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you. <laughs>